This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Gwen Berry made the Olympic team this weekend and made news by turning her back on the flag and the national anthem. That made conservatives like Congressman Dan Crenshaw from Texas mad. We don't need any more activist athletes. I, I, you know, she should be removed from the team. The entire point of the Olympic team is to represent the United States of America. More on Gwen Berry and the history of black women athletes in protest. Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. When the U.S. Olympic team competes in Tokyo later this month, track and field star Gwen Berry will be there, representing the country and the hammer throw event. That's even as critics ask why she's even on the team after she turned her back on the flag and the Star Spangled Banner during the Olympic trials. In an interview with the Black News Channel, Berry said, there's no contradiction. I never said that I didn't want to go to the Olympic Games. That's why I competed and got third and made the team. I never said that I hated the country. Never said that. All I said was I respect my people enough to not stand or acknowledge something that disrespects them. I love my people, point blank, period. But this kind of protest is nothing new for Gwen Berry or for black women in sports who have used their success to call for justice and equality and to amplify the voices of others who do that work. Joining us to talk more about it is Amir Rose Davis. She's a professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State. She's also the host of Burn It All Down, a podcast about women in sports. And Amir Rose Davis joins us now. Welcome to A Word. Yeah, happy to be here. Before we get started, in the interest of full disclosure, you know Gwen Berry, right? Yes, I do. There's some reporting that Gwen Berry didn't plan to make this statement on the podium and she felt set up. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, first and foremost, the anthem is not traditionally played on all the podium stands at the Olympic trials, um, and it hadn't been played throughout the day. So I think that when she's referring to that feeling of set up or or that coincidence, right, is that it felt to her, uh, you know, oh, of course, you're going to play it when I'm there. Now, you know, it's it's perhaps a coincidence, um, you know, that that's how she felt it. But I do think that that's important to note that, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily a plan, although she has said very clearly uh, for multiple years now that that anthem doesn't speak to her and she um, plans to stand for it in her way, whether it's raising her fist like we saw her doing in 2019 at the Pan American Games um, or what we saw this weekend where she turned her back on the anthem. You've spoken with Barry before on your podcast, including after she was sanctioned for protesting, as you just mentioned, the 2019 Pan Am Games. At that time, she said raising her fist was about a personal moment of triumph, but also about systematic racism. Here's the clip. The other reason why I raised my fist was to definitely bring awareness about the things that are not being talked about and the things that are being pushed under the rug in America. That's, you know, racial discrimination, 
a lot of black men, unarmed black men are being killed by the police. Unarmed black women are being killed by the police. People are dying in prisons. Children don't have opportunities that they would have if they had wealth, the racial wealth gap, all these things that I see literally every day. Remind us, how was her action greeted at that time and how has it evolved? Because we, we've seen an evolution in how everything from the regular public to sportscasters have responded to athlete protests really in just the last two or three years. At the time, um, both her and Reese Imadine, who, who was a fencer at the Games, both did medal stand protests. Um, and this was firmly in the Kaepernick era, as some will call it. Um, and so since 2016, this kind of new wave of athletic activism. And so it wasn't completely out of context, but it was still met with the standard responses that we have become accustomed to, which is lots of hate mail, lots of notes, lots of clamors uh, to be off the team or to be disciplined in some way. Um, In terms of how United States track and field and and their funders responded, um, you saw her really separated from a lot of funding streams, um, some of which are hard to track because they're through personal donations of of the track and field uh, kind of boosters and sponsors. And there was lack of kind of corporate sponsorship opportunities that had once existed. Although nine months later after George Floyd was murdered um, and we saw a very different response. We saw corporations saying Black Lives Matter. One of the things we saw is uh, USA Track and Field say Black Lives Matter and say much of the same stuff that Gwen was saying nine months earlier. And she said, this is really nice to hear, but I'm still on probation. Race is still on probation. Um, And they publicly apologized. They removed them from probation. They were like, okay, you were ahead of us. And I think that that's really important to note that USA Track and Field not only caught up to her, but the work that athletes have done has been so instrumental in getting the United States Olympic Committee to agree not to impose any sanctions, any more discipline. So their reaction, as you've seen, has been to not engage. When you talk about you know streams of funding, a lot of Americans probably don't really understand how track athletes are funded. Can you just take us briefly through that? Like, do you get money from USA Track? Do you have to go out and hustle to get money from Nike or Reebok? Like, how does that financial thing work? And therefore, how can it be used as a cudgel against people who are activists? Yes, um, all of the above. So especially in Olympic sports, endorsement deals are are a lot of what um, helps you along. And in addition to that, there are like subsidies and different packages that athletes get from USA Track and Field from the foundation. Um, and that money is raised a myriad of ways. Um, and so when we're talking about streams of funding within the sport, um, there's different packages that are awarded depending on your tier level. When has always been a tier one level, she was at the 2016 Olympics. Um, and so there's different awards that you get throughout the year for performance and then kind of capped off um, at various points that are additional uh, supplemental things to help training expenses, etc. And so she was getting certain awards and then noticing a pattern of not getting other ones. Again, it's very hard to track, right? Kind of on purpose. But the other thing that she was noticing was, you know, the search for sponsors for those endorsements um, was hard to come by. And what we've seen in the last few months is Color of Change has done a historic partnership uh, with Gwen. Just a few weeks ago, Puma announced their partnership with Gwen. She wore an equality shirt. And this is really significant because Puma, of course, is um, the brand that stepped up to help Tommy and and, uh, John after the 1968 Olympics. Um, So they have a legacy. They have a history of doing that. Um, And so those are the people who are having her back right now. With that in mind, uh, you know, this kind of action around 
the national anthem or the flag isn't new. And you mentioned uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their fists, you know, at the podium in the 1968 Olympics. But that's something that I think a lot of Americans, if they've paid attention to Olympic history, paid attention to black athletes and activism have heard of. But we don't hear as much about women engaging in that kind of activism. Can you tell us a little bit about black women who were doing similar protests and things in the 60s and 70s and 80s? We obviously start with Rose Robinson, who was a high jumper out of Chicago um, at the Pan American Games in 1959 in Chicago. She was not going to stand and engage in the pomp and circumstance of the anthem. Um, But she's also really notable because she refused to go on a goodwill ambassador tour with the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War, very publicly saying, I'm not a pawn to be used in your political games, very clearly identifying the way that Black athletes were being used to kind of bolster this American image abroad. and and refute Soviet propaganda about racism. And Rose Robinson refused to go very publicly. I mean, like Jet was covering this, right? Chicago Defender. And she didn't go, but six months later, she was thrown in front of a judge for tax evasion charges. And she refused to pay those, um, was uh, thrown in jail and staged a hunger strike. This was all over $386. But as we move through um, the 60s and 70s, we also have more examples of Black women athletes. That 68 games, for instance, we think about Tommy and John, as you said, um, but the Black women athletes there were excluded by the Olympic Project for Human Rights in the planning process. Um, And so really, everybody was kind of doing a free-for-all of their own protests. So Wyoming Tyus, who was 64, 68 Olympic, uh, Olympian, first person to go back to back in the 100 meters um, and, and get gold there. Uh, she wore protest shorts. She wore different color shorts as a protest. Um, she put her fist up um, along with her teammate on the medal stand briefly. They, of course, dedicated their medals to Tommy and John um, to kind of cut off the narrative of like them being outliers. And then my favorite um, thing to talk about in the 70s is a whole bunch of black cheerleaders um, at schools around the country who said, hey, we're part of the sports spectacle and we are going to use this space to join with black athletes um, and black students who are talking about, um, you know, the, the number of black students on campus or the need for black history classes or the black studies programs. Um, and so they use the sidelines of basketball games. Um, They use the field in football games to use the anthem to either sit down or to put their fists in the air. Um, And so you absolutely have black women doing this through that period of time. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on Gwen Berry and black women in elite sports. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. 
And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Did you know you could be listening to this show ad free? All it takes is a Slate Plus membership. It's just one dollar for the first month, and it helps support our show. Plus, it lets you hear all Slate podcasts without ads and read unlimited articles on the Slate site without ever hitting a paywall. So sign up now for Slate Plus at slate.com slash a word plus. That's slate.com slash a word plus. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the activism and the pressures on black women in elite sports with Amira Rose Davis. We're going to step away from Gwen Berry for a moment to talk about other athletes and other sports. The Wimbledon tennis tournament is underway without Naomi Osaka, the second-ranked player in the world. She's Haitian and Japanese, grew up in the U.S., and is a supporter of Black Lives Matter. How are people responding to Naomi Osaka and her activism today in a way that perhaps they didn't with Venus and Serena just five or six years ago or even further back? I think it's a really good juxtaposition. Naomi has been so critical to the growth of the sport and to a kind of new wave of athletic activism, um, both by, you know, donning masks at the U.S. Open with the names of victims of police um, violence and uh, state-sanctioned violence and police brutality. Um, And she's been really uh, consistent, right, about not letting tennis sports media flatten or erase her identity, erase her blackness. Um, She puts herself on a continuum with the Williams sisters. Naomi, like Venus and Serena, can stand on the pedestal of winning to be taken seriously. One of the things you've chronicled in your podcast is the collective activism of different kinds of women in team sports, like the WNBA's Atlanta Dream. I'm curious if you think that that women's activism is sometimes easier in a team sport than, say, an individual sport like gymnastics or tennis? Is it easier to band together as a group than having to go it alone? I think that collective action is really necessary for, a, you know, I mean, just mobilization, you're going to get more done. And for women's sports, that has absolutely been a feature for a number of reasons. Um, and I think that when you're talking about the W and you're talking about the dreams impact, it's really important to understand that not only is the history of the W 
absolutely political, but that the players brought the league along, right? And so if you go back to the months even before Kaepernick took a knee, you had WNBA players on the Liberty, on the Indiana Fever. Like you absolutely had uh, WNBA players who were shutting down pressers, saying we're not going to take a question unless it has to do with police brutality. They were standing together. They were wearing, you know, black shirts in solidarity. And this is an important moment, right? Because the league tries to find them. The league tries to find them for wearing these black shirts um, at the same time that the NBA is putting their superstars on the stage at the ESPYs and applauding them for their, you know, activism. They're fining the WNBA salaries of people where their salaries is already devastatingly low, right? And it was stopped because, A, the players refused to yield. Tina Charles got player of the week, and they did a whole presentation um, at half court for her, and she wore her protest shirt to do that. And the caption that she put was essentially like, no, we're not going to stop saying Black Lives Matter. We're not going to stop doing this because we're asking you as a league, that same energy you have for pride, and many of us are queer and we appreciate it, but that same energy you have for pride, that same energy you have for breast cancer, show up now, pull up now. And because that they were so staunchly together on that, the league had to follow them. Uh, Amira, I want to turn back to Gwen Berry and other recent protests at the Olympic trials. So the Olympics start in a couple of weeks. What's the actual official policy around protests from the Olympic Committee? And, you know, is there an expectation that this is going to be a long, hot summer? Like, has the rule really been laid down? Is everybody given freedom to make their individual choices? Where are we at right now? The Olympic Committee in the United States, right, has basically said we're not penalizing this. This is a right of expression. That was a hard fought win by the athletes and especially the athletes on the Social Justice Council. Um, And so they are not going to intervene. We know that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, has is clinging very hard to Rule 50, right? So that's banning political expression protest. It's a very gray area on purpose, right? Um, and so there's ways that they're like, okay, this is what's this is what's acceptable, or you could do this in the Olympic Village, but you can't do this, you can't do that. So for instance, they said that uh, you can't wear the words Black Lives Matter, but you can wear equality or justice or freedom. You know, I think it's very telling when the Olympic Committee is like, yeah, wear these random words, but you can't wear Black Lives Matter. And so because of that, and because they're kind of watching for it, it remains to be seen what athletes, not only U.S. athletes, because we've seen Black athletes around the globe, um, and, and not just Black athletes, but use the Olympics also as a site of protest, remains to be seen who actually goes there and, and, and does something, um, and then how the Olympic Committee responds. One of the reasons why they keep it a gray area um, is because they like to kind of kick it back to the federations to do their dirty work for them. And because the U.S. committee has already said we're not going to do anything, it's going to be really interesting to see if they try to do more. How do these athletes, when they're engaging in these protests, do you have a sense as to what other athletes feel about this? Because one of the things that we've seen in America in male team sports is, you know, you had a lot of NBA players who were like, yeah, you know, Black Lives Matter. But you had a couple stand out and say, well, I can't do Black Lives Matter because I'm a Christian. There were serious conflicts in the NFL. I mean, you had serious conflicts in the NFL, sometimes between quarterbacks, linemen, all sorts of literally position groups disagreeing about how to speak out in these kinds of issues. How was that playing out in the Olympics? Do you have athletes who are quietly or publicly saying, 
look, I don't want to see any of this. It's distracting from my ability to concentrate. Or do you think as a collective, most athletes in the Olympics are saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm glad they're doing what they need to do to perform. What's the internal conflict like within the sport? Yeah, I mean, so absolutely, this is a brand new day because of the last year that we've had. Um, and so the Social Justice Committee uh, internally has done a lot of work with their fellow athletes to get to a point of, you know, if, if people have personal issues with things or if they'll do it differently, um, they've at least had space to talk about that. And they also are understanding that that's it's not requiring them to act, right? Um, and you've seen absolutely white allyship, white ath- Olympic athletes, and that is a tale of olden time. Pete Norman, who's on the medal stands with Tommy and John, doesn't necessarily get talked about as much. But if you look closely to that picture, you'll see he's wearing an Olympic Project for Human Rights um, button. He was very close with them. He was shunned by Australia. He's the fastest dude in Australia, absolutely blacklisted from from track competitions for not denouncing them. Actually, when Pete passed on, both Tommy and John went back and were his pallbearers. Um, The Harvard rowing team also was in in solidarity with them. Um, The WNBA is really effective because the white women in the league are standing there and understanding how their position is is uh, important, right? And when they need to step front and when they need to step to the back. I mean, I think in the Olympics, you're starting to see this too. I mentioned race who protested with Gwen last fall. Race is a white man. He's a fencer. Um, and I think that you see Olympians just this past weekend, many standing in support of Gwen, many saying, you know, uh, Michael Johnson just, you know, retweeted and said like, whether you agree or disagree, like on tactics, right? You have to admire the bravery and you have to respect her freedom to do it. And I think that's where a lot of people are coming down right now. What can those of us who are watching these athletes entertain us, represent us, and then fight for us? What is the way for those of us outside of this realm to show these athletes that we support what they're doing and believe in them and believe in what they're doing both on and off the court field or track? Yeah, I love that. Well, one, tune in. Um, and I say that especially for especially for like the W, right? Like um, a lot of people put them on a pedestal and like look at them as activists. And it's like tune into a game. Like these are elite athletes. There's just like a base level to this, um, you know, support, support sports. Now, Olympic sports, that's never been hard, right? There's, it's kind of a masculine act to share for your country. So like women's sports in the Olympics have always been things that people have crowded around and cheered for, et cetera. When it comes back to the domestic space, keep that same energy. Absolutely. Um, look for ways to stand up and stand for Olympians. If you want to support Gwen, for instance, she has a website. You can buy her activist athlete shirt. Many people have foundations. People write op-eds. People hold town hall meetings, amplify their voices, right? Um, stand with them and, and, and say like, no, they have a right to speak and here's how we can amplify this. Um, and also, I think that a lot of people are doing really important work with various foundations. I just want to shout out the Black Women's Players Collective, which is the Black women in the NWSL who have partnered with um, Players for Change from the MLS who've said, hey, one of the biggest issues about getting black kids into soccer is that there's not enough soccer fields, you know? Um, And so they have been working to just create soccer fields and create opportunities in soccer across the country. And so those things, those those, um, kind of smaller work that is being done, a lot of local work, wherever you are, if you have a team in the area, there's more than likely that there is some initiative that black players are are doing um, that you can support and get involved with to recognize their whole self. Amir Rose Davis is an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University and the co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.
And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel and Jasmine Ellis. Asha Salusha is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.